Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. How big, globally, is the problem of not having an identity? Around the world, more than a billion people have no way to prove who they are, lacking those basic documents such as a passport or birth certificate. This poses a huge problem for individuals when it comes to access to services such as healthcare and education, to work or to travel. And it creates a challenge for governments in law enforcement, fraud prevention and administration. Could digital identities solve this? Could digital identities solve the problem? And is there a case for making giving everyone an identity? And is there a case for making giving everyone an identity a social purpose? And one which could also improve security? Our guest this week is Julie Dawson, Director of Regulatory and Policy at identity provider Yoti. I asked her first to explain the scale of the problem. So it is a big problem. So it's defined as legal identity in the UN SDGs. So UN SDG 16.9 is basically aiming to get the over one to one and a half billion people around the world that have no legal identity, so no government-issued identity documents, to have some way of proving their legal identity. Um, So this is people that many in low-income countries and 50% of the women have no way of proving who they are. We have over 40% of young people, children in the global south who don't have a birth certificate. Um, So it's very hard for those people to exist civically and to um, become democratic citizens, have a financial um, track record, and also have a health track record if they have not got a way of proving who they are. So yes, it's a very big problem. And to be clear, we're not just talking about digital identities here, we're talking about paper identity documents as well. Exactly. It's it's classed as legal identity by the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, So these are people that don't have even a foundational document that could start them on a track to, at some point, having a digital identity. So that would be things such as a birth certificate? Birth certificate or passport. Um, And if you don't have the original birth certificate, how then do you go on to, to have other proofs of existing. Yeah, absolutely. So what sort of problems does that create at the society level and for the individuals concerned? On the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 6, you know, everyone should have the right to be recognised as a person before the law. And this is the key issue. If someone doesn't have um, a document indicating that they exist, that means that we have over one, you know, over a billion people, about 15% of the global population, without which they, in many areas, find it difficult to own land, access healthcare, access social services, vote, go to school, go to university, um, many things that the rest of us take for granted. So this is people having no identity at all, not even digital. And obviously, there are people that um, have wider definitions where they think of identity. But in this instance, we're thinking of that legal element of identity. And are the people without identity documentation concentrated in certain areas? The best figures we've come across from this are either from the World Bank um, or ID for Development. Um, There's been a lot of work done by the likes of the Omidyar Foundation. And the figures that we've seen are over 50% of women in low-income countries don't have a way of proving who they are. And 40% of children in the global south don't have a birth certificate. Um, So that is a considerable number. That is absolutely, that's a huge number, isn't it? So what role can digital play here in fixing this problem, or at least in reducing some of its impact on individuals? 
many parts of the world, paper-based systems are being replaced by digital due to security elements. Um, one of the things that if you look at the evolution of, say, passports and driving licenses, these quite expensive documents have evolved to have more and more security features. If you saw, a, you know, the original um, sort of documents issued to, to ambassadors to travel from country to country, they were very different than the ones we have today. And even passports of 50 years ago had stuck on photographs. So there's been a whole evolution in the technology around some of the more sophisticated identity documents. But one of the tricky things is obviously they're easy to lose. Um, and the evolution to digital allows more thorough security methods to be embedded and also enables users to access a wide range of services and also to just disclose parts of their identity when that is useful to them. Um, so it can offer them a wider set of services, but also what we call selective disclosure. So there might be some instances where a user just wants to share their age. In other instances, is happy to share age and maybe other details, name or address or, or other elements of their identity. Maybe just a, a qualification to be in a first stage of screening for a role. So there's more flexible elements that digital technology can support. And also one of the things is around the anti-fraud landscape. So there are many different elements once you start to involve digital in the loop that enables um, organizations to look at different security features. So it is an evolution. Um, there will be instances where for societal and for um, you know, people's own comfort, they do in some instances prefer paper-based documents, but just take the UK. We have a million driving licenses, physical documents lost and stolen each year, 400,000 passports lost and stolen. Um, that's a lot of proofs of identity that can get into the wrong hands. And there's high risks when these um, physical documents are lost. So it's, it's not an overnight step, but there is a key role that digital technology can play in terms of offering a wider range of services and the security and trust angles. So to an extent, you can potentially leapfrog some of the disadvantages of paper or physical documentation by moving straight to digital. It's interesting. I, I don't know how many countries will do that in an overnight step. I'd say a lot of places around the world do have citizens with physical documents and are gradually moving. But there might be some instances where that is the case. So if you look, for instance, during COVID, um, we started to support NHS members of staff to have a digital proof of their staff identification. So there could have been some people that started working that didn't actually go and get a physical badge and a physical proof that they were a porter or a doctor at a certain hospital, and that could be issued linked to their digital identity. So that could be an instance of where a leapfrog could happen. Somebody doesn't actually go to a physical location to take their physical identity and get a physical badge. Their, their, their the screening process might happen digitally and they might be offered a digital credential. Um, their own credentials, such as their employment status, their medical track record, um, maybe their criminal records might have been checked digitally and a digital credential is issued, which could be revoked and which could be updated. So that maybe gives an example of the types of flexibility that a digital identity could give over a paper-based check and the physical issuance of a physical um, another ID card. So what form would that take? Is that likely to be some form of mobile application? How are you developing that as an organization? So that was developed over a year ago um, during COVID, and it was enabling someone that had a physical 
um, identity document to set up their Yoti. So set up a reusable digital ID that's set up in a three to five minute process where somebody um, has a device, they download the Yoti app. They are taking a selfie, so something they are, adding a government issued identity document and then creating a five digit pin. After that, they can choose to share different elements of their identity, but they could also choose to accept a credential such as being a volunteer at an organization or such as having a staff role at an organization. And that is linking their digital identity, which has been grounded to a government issued identity document, but adding another attribute to that, such as a staff or volunteer role. So again, it is generally device-based, so you're using mobile phones as the uh, as the vehicle for this? In that instance, yes. Um, another area that we've been looking at for several years is the use of what we've termed Yoti keys. And we did quite a bit of research in, in different contents on these, where we put the same quality chip that you'd find in a passport, an ICAO sort of level chip, and we implanted this in the form factor of just a physical plastic, almost like a key fob, and we've done research whereby people could choose to use that in a closed loop. So somebody that might not have a government issued identity document, but maybe, for instance, receiving an injection or doing a course. And on, on this key fob, you could tap that, you could add just a photo and say the fact that someone had had an injection um, for a specific um, condition. And what if that person were to come back X months later, you could check it was the same individual. If they tapped on the tablet, is that the same person in front of you? And this was an injection for, say, cholera. Um, so that would be an example of something that we've developed and created um, an approach which could be open sourced and used by different organizations. It could work in a setting um, in the developed world or in the developing world. And that would be one that wouldn't be reliant on people actually having a mobile device or having a government issued identity document at the core. So you're solving for two of those problems at the same time there. But this is the question, isn't it? How do you roll this out in areas where people don't have uh, necessarily the original proof identity to start with and then in a verification of who they are or potentially uh, you know, what their role is or qualifications and so on? You know, how do you roll that all into areas, in particular these, uh, these areas that you've identified where uh, there isn't the uh, uptake or, or the availability of government-issued ID that we'd expect in, uh, say, Northwest Europe? So Yoti is, a, is, as I said, a company of 300 people. We're not claiming or aiming to solve this single-handedly around the world. Um, so there are a whole range of organisations in, in the digital identity area and wider tech area that have been looking at this issue of people without proofs of identity. However, we have looked at what we can do. And one of the areas was developing this offline identity solution for the humanitarian sector. Um, we undertook research and we, we tried to see how people on the ground could actually see how that was useful for them rather than us catapulting that into to their areas. We've also undertaken a fellowship program where we've had fellows in South Africa, um, in India and in Latin America actually undertake research to issues around identity in their countries and um, letting them explore issues and being part of a fellowship program to give them a platform to explain more about the issues of identity in their country. 
We developed a third um, strand, which was a digital identity toolkit to explain in really straightforward terms some of the issues around digital identity, um, trying to explain things in simple language, some of the pitfalls, and not anything that's specifically Yoti um, branded, but just explaining the basics around digital identity so that people could actually see the wheat from the chaff and hopefully um, have plain English um, language materials to explain some of the issues. All of this work is led by my colleague, Ken Banks, who is a, an Ashoka fellow and has worked for many years in the sector. We, on top of that, developed a program for humanitarian tech-focused startups should they wish to use wider elements of the, the Yoti platform. And recently, we've done other innovation challenges, such as the African Conservation Challenge, which is looking at working with NGOs in, in Africa that are trying to um, engender trusted, respectful online debate and looking at how verified identities can be helpful in that. Um, we've also done a recent Tigerthon challenge, again, um, looking at verification elements in, in that supply chain. So there's a whole range of different activities you can see through our social purpose work led by um, Ken Banks. But we're not the only organizations tackling this, nor do we have unlimited resources. But we're trying to look at things very much bottom up and try and work out what people on the ground see as their issues um, rather than saying, you know, take this. Uh, so what do you see then as the development of ID technologies in areas where people do have uh, government issued IDs? So um, particularly you know, where we are in the UK and the EU and so forth. Uh, what are the pros and cons to that? And particularly what have we learned during the last sort of 18 months of the pandemic around the people's approach to identity? And, and of course, the difficulty of issuing physical documents, which uh, certainly has been quite widely experienced with things like passport and driving license issues uh, over the last couple of uh, the last year or so. So I think we, we are seeing across quite a few major economies that digital identity is a specific programme within governments. So Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand have clear development of trust frameworks. So at government level, there are distinct programs looking at how can digital identity be rolled out. This could be both the public sector and private sector, or in some instances, those are, are, are separated. But absolutely, governments have been exploring how can you more safely and um, reduce fraud to government services, as well as, and has this has been obviously something clear in the financial services sector for quite a while. Um, previous governor of the, the Bank of England, Mark Carney, made some very specific statements, and similarly in the Khalifa review, um, that digital identity has a distinct role to play in terms of financial services, which is quite key, um, looking at who people are and trying to reduce fraud. But as well as that we're seeing in other areas. Um, upcoming in the UK, there are pilots being run by the Home Office, and this is on the public record after um, them introducing a sandbox around alcohol licensing in the UK and technology that can help take the strain in retail environments and maintain good age checking. So how can we reduce the sale of age-restricted goods to people under the age of, of, say, 18 or 16? And how can we support retail staff who are trying to, to um, obviously operate during difficult conditions? How can we support good age checking? So that is, is one area. You might have seen as well through the Information Commissioner's Office, they've had a sandbox and they've been looking at how can organisations prepare for the age-appropriate design code. 
Um, and there's a lot of angles within that, which is looking at how do we enable young people to thrive online and how do we provide experiences which are age appropriate for them? So should, for example, tracking or geolocation or nudge techniques be turned off for certain age groups, as well as looking at what is the age appropriate support or content moderation for young people? There's obviously been a huge amount of work globally around health credentials. So the likes of the Good Health Path Collaborative, which we took part in, have had over 130 companies from the digital identity ecosphere working together to look at the issues around identity binding, looking at the issues around both physical and digital health credentials, but linking them to um, actual people with their government-issued identity document. So a lot of work done around health credentials. Obviously, there have been bodies such as the World Health Organization as well, looking closely at the vaccine um, credentials, as well as wider health credentials. There's a movement called the Velocity Foundation looking at employment credentials. So um, organizations will be able to know that this is definitely the right candidate with these specific um, employment history and specific qualifications. There's been movement also in the property and um, property conveyancing world. You might have seen the trust framework development there, also enabling techniques such as e-witnessing, and in the social media landscape, we've seen that organizations' payment processes are requiring to know who is uploading content. And if there's more than one individual in content, um, having an e-signature linked to an identity of the different people uploading content. So there are many, um, many elements to these. It goes across multiple sectors. But I think what is clear is that there has been a coming of age of the digital identity landscape. Um, there was a McKinsey study a few years ago showing a three to 7% potential GDP uplift and governments can't afford to you know, look a gift horse in the mouth. They do have to look at where can they streamline, where can they reduce fraud and where can they enable the right people to receive the right benefits and um, businesses are wanting to know who, who they're dealing with, quite simply, in many, many sectors. So we're seeing that whereas in the past there was perhaps a, um, an overconfidence in a physical meeting and a physical check, there's been several realizations that that is not always possible. And in many instances, it's hard for individuals who are not trained to border control level to actually look at documents from over 190 countries in the world without sophisticated technology and without um, very good training. Very few people have the skill set, the knowledge and, and the expertise to review documents from around the world. So um, hence, Many different areas are looking at this. The right to work and right to rent areas are, are classic ones. Coming back to something you said earlier, uh, the point that you don't have to disclose the whole of the identity is one of the advantages of digital. So you know, if you hand over your government issued document, everything on that document is visible to the person scrutinising it. They may not need to know all that information. So by moving into a digital format, we can disclose just what we need to disclose for that task or for that application or for that, uh, that border control or whatever it might be. Is that something you think would drive the take up of this? I think the selective disclosure element is one that businesses see very clearly. Businesses are not wanting to handle more personally identifiable information than they need. And 
the element of a reusable digital ID where the consumer just shares what they need to share. I think people are just starting to get their head around. Um, there aren't many areas of the world where there's really sufficient utility, but take, for instance, the states of Jersey. We've been working there now for a few years. Over 55% of the adult population has set up a digital identity using Yoti, which they can use both for public sector use cases, such as paying their taxes, or um, I'm sure there are pesky parking fines and other things that you might need to do. But as well as that, in their day-to-day -day life, they can also use it, say, just to prove age. And I think what we'll see increasingly is there are more instances where people start to see the benefit. When I can go into my local supermarket at the weekend and not have to wait at the self-checkout, when I can use the same thing to check, for instance, my, my pension, um, or check other elements that, that, that I need for travel, then it's, there starts to be sufficient utility that consumers see the benefit. And I hope that that is going to be the case for more consumers over the next year. How then does digital identity improve security? Because this is one of the big questions, and particularly uh, if you have uh, the need to attribute cyber attacks and other incidents to individuals or locations. If you don't have proof of identity, that becomes very hard to do. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the stats from CIFAS um, each year in terms of the the potent, you know, the number of cases which are recorded on the National Fraud Database, it was 82% this last year of identity fraud and misuse of facility cases um, were, were, were via identity in the National Fraud Database. So it really is a key area. And that element of, of how many documents we, we lose physically each year through carrying them around is, is eye-watering. A million driving licenses, 400,000 passports just in the UK. And there's been some interesting studies about the real cost of when each victim loses an ID document. So one in the US and the National Victimization Service said it was almost $3,000, um, the, the sort of the total cost of the identity theft, not just replacing the physical documents, but the fallout from those documents getting into the wrong hands. And then, um, you know, the impact on the individual of the time and the effort and the imp overall impact of just losing an identity document. And when we see um, that happening or elements of our identity um, being hacked, that is indeed very sobering. So I think this is a key reason why government and businesses are looking more closely at what can you to do prevent um, elements of identity theft and fraud? What can you do to reduce the amount of personal identifiable in, in information that is being handed over? Um, and I think for individuals, it, it will start to become clear that you need to be careful when you're filling in forms in the same way you need to be careful not to lose your, your physical documents. So can you build some elements of that security into your system or, in fact, have you already done so? So, for example, if someone is sent a suspicious email, if they're sent a phishing email, they don't just hand over all their identity, uh, but they are prompted through some steps which might say, actually, do you need to disclose this information at this point or Maybe you need to you know, get out of that loop and contact the organisation by phone or some other way to verify that what they're asking for is legitimate. So we're working in a number of areas around that. Um, so one, for instance, is with our um, partnership with Key, who are specialists in, in that area. We also, for example, work with e-signatures, um, where, for instance, if I was a company, I want to know it's definitely Stephen that is receiving and signing for, for this document, I could request... Um, 
an identity sort of uplift in that e-signature flow. So absolutely, there could be a number of instances that you actually want to ensure that it's the, the right individual. Say with a high value payment, you might request an additional selfie biometric check, which links back to the original selfie when you set up your Yoti. Um, absolutely similarly with say high value transactions, um, and also with e-signatures. There are quite a few instances in our daily lives where that uplift and knowing it is the right person in control of that account, in control of that email, or choosing to sign a document is, is, is really crucial. And I think we'll see more sectors looking at this closely. So that potentially could be used to counter things like business email compromise and some of these uh, fraud attempts that are based on false invoices uh, or asking people to transfer funds to a different bank account. There are many, many different applications, I think what we've got to look at is um, where companies are trying to um, prevent as well as look at the after the after effects. So I think there's, there's, there's both the prevention, the education, and then absolutely looking at the techniques, organizations. It could be just with suspicious activity reports. Um, is this actually the right person that is requesting this? It can be with the document, has the right person signed for this, as well as with emails. Um, I think there are many different instances and businesses are looking at this, be it from leasing, be it from who's, who's actually signing this employment contract through to who is actually arriving at this building. Um, I think there are going to be many more instances in the supply chain of organizations where they really um, scrutinize more carefully what is the audit trail we have is this the right individual contacting me? Is this the right individual that I'm actually engaging with? And the business model for that is typically that the organisation requesting identity pays for it. But actually quite a large percentage of what you're doing is on a not-for-profit basis. Uh, why do you believe that's important? So we do have a range of clients um, in the non-profit area as well as in the for-profit area and governments. Um, one of the things that we did when we set up at Yoti was to make a pledge that the basic elements of Yoti would be available on a non-profit basis. Um, I think it's it's fair to say that we, we found that the non-profit sector has been slower over the last seven years to take up this opportunity. Um, we've seen, however, that there have been more instances of maturity of the sector to understand that they do need to also verify and authenticate staff and volunteers, um, their suppliers in a secure and private way. So we hope that that will increase. For instance, we've, we've worked with the likes of the NSPCC Childline in a different way, which has enabled um, them to enable young people to share just a data minimized under 18 age element to, re to um, apply to remove sexting or nude images from the internet, which again might not immediately come to mind. Um, we worked with volunteers during COVID to enable them to have a volunteer ID badge to present at the supermarket to say that this was specifically a volunteer. Um, we hope there will be, be, be more organisations that take up this offer. You are a, a B Corp certified organisation and, and you do have a, a social purpose initiative process there. So uh, do you think that 
the security industry more generally could do more on those lines. They could have more social purpose initiatives. So it's interesting. If you look at the Edelman Trust Index, I think there's a clear move towards um, consumers and businesses looking at the ethical angle, wanting to know that they're dealing with companies that have good governance in place, that look after their staff well, that think about their supply chain, um, that also look at what they're doing in their community, be it for you know the environment, be it for their physical community around them. Um, and, and tech companies, I think, we, we are seeing more joining B Corps. Um, and I hope that, that more see the wider, um, wider benefits of this for staff attraction, staff retention, as well as the role they can play within their communities. But building trust is, is a long journey. You don't do it overnight. Um, the, the, the B Corp certification is really quite an exigent one. It's not like the old fashioned CSR where somebody could just, you know, paint a fence and take some photos, your governance, your, your suppliers, how you treat your staff, um, how you treat the environment and the community. So it's, it's, it's quite a commitment. And I can understand why for some companies that is, is daunting. But we've seen many benefits from, from going down this route. Um, and I think that companies will be judged more on having a, a, a dual purpose of, of, of scaling both their profits and a purpose element in parallel. And I hope that more companies do look at that. Julie Dawson, Director of Regulatory and Policy at Identity Provider Yoti, on how being a B Corp combines with running a profitable business and how the security industry as a whole could focus more on its social purpose. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. Our next programme will be on Wednesday, December the 1st, when we'll be speaking to the co-founders of Respect in Security. I hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon or Spotify. Thanks again for listening.